and welcome to the 9 o'clock show weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the past week. Tony Walsh joined me in the studio ahead of World AIDS Day. Michelle O'Mahony and Gwen McQuirk celebrate 300 years of the wedding dress. Kevin Quaid talks openly about what it's like living with dementia. Gordon Hogan on life as an artist. And on Friday's show, the classic Christmas number one song with Dave Hanratty. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Now, it's over four decades since Ireland first felt the devastating impact of AIDS and HIV. And my guest this morning has campaigned tirelessly for awareness, empathy, understanding and progress. And for many years, he's been swimming against the tide of stigma and ignorance. One of his aspirations was for Ireland to have a permanent monument to the lives lost and broken through the AIDS epidemic. The results of his campaigning will be unveiled on Sunday. The monument is called Embrace Loop and it will be installed in the Phoenix Park. Good morning, Tony Walsh. Hello, Brendan. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, I know you years. You are a national treasure and the godfather of of Ireland's gay culture, queer culture, as we call it. Uh, First of all, how are you feeling about the monument? I'm really excited that it's happening. I'm really excited and quite moved that actually the Taoiseach and... Uh, his department made it happen so quickly. Yeah, uh, we've been, we've been. There've been a lot of community engagement and consultation around it about five years ago, and I didn't think I thought it would actually just be a distraction during the COVID pandemic. But um, government just pushed ahead with it. So it, actually, there's very it's a cute Irishy story of how it came about. Right, you were doing your walk. <laughs> is that, and, and, and Leo was you've on heard, the walk. Is that, yeah, but I did the walk. I did the first walk. Okay, remember? So, but it's actually it is. It's well. It also shows you the it shows you the nature of how casual politics and connections can be in Ireland. I was doing a culture night walking tour in twenty eighteen. That's right. Yeah, and I heard that the was told that the Taoiseach and his partner were going to join us for the walk, and I thought, okay. Now I heard this early in the morning. I thought this is a perfect opportunity to go and print off a paper I'd given in Manu's College on World AIDS Day December prior. And it was basically, I'd given a short paper arguing for why we needed to have a memorial in Ireland and why the time was right to build a physical uh, monument. I thought this is my golden opportunity. So um, I palmed off the... um, the proposal to uh, the Taoiseach during the walk and then his now, second... Don't gloss off that you actually gave it to him while he's I on the walk. I gave it to him. Before, <laughs> I gave it to him on the walk and I said, listen, I'd love you to have a look at this. <laughs> Only you. And then he... But it was like, where is I going to you get an opportunity for this? I don't know him personally. Yeah. And, um, and then his, his secretary uh, wrote, wrote back to me and said, uh, the Taoiseach is really interested in this idea. We'd love to do something about it. And then that a sort of roller coaster of meetings in, um, in government buildings and uh, some communication. And from that, it opened out into more community engagement. Now, the Taoiseach's department were, were, were working in parallel with a group of community groups like HV Ireland uh, and others we had meetings in Belfast, we had meetings in Galway, we had meetings in Cork and in Dublin, just trying to get a measure of what people wanted. And, you know, it's it's really important. We're going to look back on history that yeah. we have. We bring together the widest possible group of stakeholders who were affected by the pandemic in the first place. OK, let's go back then, right back to the start. So remind people of the reality of those days. Uh, sometimes it feels like people can just put the ribbon on. Mark the day and move on, right? But uh, World Aid Day is very important, isn't it? Because uh, go back, take me back to the to the when it first broke and what it was like in the country. 
Well, it's important that we remember those yeah. of us who lived through it. And then there's, there's, I suppose, through the process of remembering, we can actually open up conversations with a, a later generation who just are completely ignorant of it. And we can come back and talk about how there is an, still an enormous ignorance in, in, in sort of public memory of what happened. I think actually... The recent pandemic, COVID, has helped shine a new light on the AIDS pandemic of 40 years ago. So I think we're beginning to engage in that process with a lot, a lot more honesty and empathy as a society. But living through it, I'm 62 and living through it as a gay man, I mean, by the age of 35, I'd lost two f- lovers and half of my friends. Wow. By the age of 35. And there was, I simply did not have... The psychoemotional language are the tools uh, available to me to make sense of that loss. It was just seemed like a never-ending, um, never-ending series of funerals, the hospital hospital visits and whatnot. Um, and and the problem is that the the three major groups who demographics that were affected by by AIDS in the early days of the pandemic were gay and bisexual men sex workers, IV drug users. IV drug users, people forget, actually. In some ways, they've been slightly written out of our, our memory of the pandemic. IV drug users were the, the lead demographic in this country um, of, 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 in, of HIV and AIDS infections for a long time. Um, but all of the early demographics, and then, of course, we had hemophilix who were infected by, who um, got AIDS as a result of infected blood products from abroad. But the early demographics were people who, um, whose infection was coloured by criminality and transgressiveness and othering, social othering. And that made it, at the time, it made it difficult to try and actually get a handle on our experience and even too, as we progressed to a point later on where new therapies came on board, like AZT in 19, although that was toxic in 1987, and then later antiretroviral therapies, I've often thought as the years unfolded that we weren't allowed, those of us who lost fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and grandchildren, that we weren't allowed to grieve. We weren't allowed to make sense of our loss. It was full of shame. Oh, it was full of shame. And there's people have carried anger with them. They've carried they've carried grief and they've carried they've had this burden. And it's made worse by the fact that they look at society, mainstream society, and feel that we haven't been allowed to make sense of that loss. And our loss hasn't been valued. And I suppose you know, we're at a distance now where we can actually build a physical monument and we can start the process of remembering and we can put a value on the suffering that people experience. I can, I can actually, and I, I do know you well over the years, I can hear how important this is to you personally, though, as well. Well, do you know what? I, I mean, I'm surrounded by a whole new generation of fabulous friends and everything, but I, I, I sometimes think, and it's difficult saying this, but sometimes I think I'll never get over, I'll never get over what happened. I, and I and for that reason, I often call it the war. I think I'll never get over it. And I don't want to, you know, I'm, it's, it's difficult talking about this sometimes, Brendan, because I don't want to sort of end up pathologising grief. It's not about medicalising it. You know, if we just simply throw drugs at it, we're not going to sort it out. We need to talk about what happened. Yeah. We need to educate people about what happened. That's really important. I get the impression that a big part of the scarring, the, the, the mental the psychotic scarring uh, is because of the stigma, because you couldn't process, because it was put it away, 
you know, and which was very much of the atmosphere of the time. Do you think that played a large part in it? Because I'm yeah. looking here, the media had some of the headlines at the time, the misinformation around Oh, that. shocking. But you also have to remember, too, we're talking about the arrival of AIDS at a time when we didn't even have sexual health clinics. Yeah. I mean, sexual health... Well, it was illegal to be gay. Yeah, it was illegal to be gay. Condoms were actually legally restricted as well up until 1995. People forget that as well. They weren't available to under-18s until after 1995. I've done a few of these talks, and I'm sure you agree, and you say, you know, I was 21 when homosexuality was legalised in 1993. I was an adult renting an apartment with Alan, my friend, and living away from my... I was an adult. I was adulted. And it was then... that I often hear an audible, what? From younger people. They forget. It's in within our generation. And you know, I think it's really important that you actually mention the criminality because if your sex, if your desire, if the way you negotiate intimacy and the desire has been criminal, then it's very difficult to, for example, to put um, sexual health, safer sex strategies in place to actually sort of open up a wider conversation about normalising affection, normalising desire, and also looking at how... You, we need to put in place, and people are attempting to do that, put in place really strong harm reduction strategies. We still haven't, we're still only tinkering with that, for example, when it comes to injecting drug users, and they still constitute a significant part of new HIV infections. We're still not really talking about women and trans women who've been uh, disproportionately affected. I mean, new infections of HIV are going up amongst women. And historically, women have been underrepresented in a lot of the public discourse. I mean, a lot of it has been sort of gay-centric. And in some ways, that's because, first of all, for all the reasons you just outlined, all the shame, cultural shame that attached to gay men being infected by um, um, uh, HIV. But also, we were the gay community was just better organised than a lot of other demographics back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so I think, too, now, the whole process of remembering sort of begs the question, well, how do we deal with trauma? Yeah. And, you know, trauma rarely leaves physical trace. It's embedded in our psycho-emotional well-being and everything else. We have to, our, our psycho-emotional identity. It rarely leaves a physical trace. And then that really pushes us to ask the bigger question, well, then, what's, what, how, what does memorialising involve? Do we build a little physical monument in Phoenix Park where people can go and passively grieve? And that's really important, and I won't deny that to anyone, anyone else. But I would suggest that it has to be something bigger than that. We have to have conversations like you and I are having now. We have to sort of encourage um, a greater awareness in the school education system because it ain't there. You know, we have to encourage, fi- help finance and fund cultural expression. I mean, I'd love to think that next year the, the new monument will be a year old and somebody will have poetry readings or some cinematic event or some cultural event up there in Phoenix Park. You'll be, need, need to be well wrapped for it on World Day Day. But that we do that sort of stuff and, then we, and it allows people a sort of wider engagement and reflection on what's happened before. And also, too, I think this is really important. Building monuments is no use. When, if we look at the legacy, the legacy of the AIDS um, pandemic has to be about asking questions of where we are now. That's really fundamentally important as well. It's not just about looking back. It's you, about you looking forward. There, you touched on it there. Uh, just, you, all we have is the present. Where are we now? Yeah. Where are we now with yeah. this, with, 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 in terms of infections and the disease? Uh, 
we need greater, more urgent conversations and smarter interventions. You know, we need to, we don't have proper sexual health testing around the country. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was living in um, Clonmel, which is 19,000 people, up until 2019. And I was heading off for holidays to Amsterdam just before Christmas. And I decided I need to go and have an STI uh, checkup. And I phoned South Tip General Hospital and the nurse came online and she said, um, well, the earliest appointment I can give you is January. I said, well, that's not going to be much use to me. <laughs> I need I'm to actually laughing. have a checkup it's not, it's not, now. But it's not funny, right? And she said, well, we end up having a mad conversation. She said, well, there's only two and a half nurses here and we work a Wednesday afternoon. I said, oh, my God, this is a sexual health clinic for all of South Tip. Yeah. And they work and one afternoon a week Yeah, for a hinterlands of about 90,000 people. I said, this is just not right. No, no, no. The infrastructure, that sort of sexual health infrastructure needs to be, we need to take it seriously. And do you think this... And testing kits, for example. Yes. Now, people are talking about testing kits, home testing kits for HIV and everything. You should be just available. PrEP should be available for if you're a sex worker or whatever, or you feel you're engaging in risky activity, roll out the PrEP and make it free at point of use. All that sort of stuff is really important. Um... The misinformation at the time and the scaremongering was rife and it was led. I mean, look, it was a different time and no finger pointing at this stage. But there was I remember headlines that scared. I was like 14, 15 when it landed. You know, it terrified us. And in a way, my generation uh, were so terrified. You know, a condom was something we carried always from the age of 18. We just it, it was my mother would make sure don't go out there because the, the, the ads came and just in time for my generation. But prior to that, what kind of misinformation do you remember? Uh, apart from misinformation, I just remember very little, an absence of information more than misinformation. Yeah. Just it's, it, the information wasn't there. And I tried to sort of dial down. I mean, I think I was unusual in that I was, because I was politically active, I was getting, watching and reading what was happening from the States. So I think I was, I was part of a small group of people who were a little bit more privileged. We knew what was actually happening. We knew that Ireland was setting up as for a calamity if we didn't actually get on board and make some changes. And you know what? Some positives. Like one one of the things too that's lovely about, I think, about memorialising the period, certainly diving into the trauma, diving into the grief uh, that happened, um, that ge two generations experienced, but also looking at the positives. Because you know what too, like, I'm sure you appreciate this, the AIDS pandemic actually accelerated the need for recognition of uh, same-sex relationships. Of course, yeah, yeah. People forget that. Yeah. Because we had we had to deal with issues where um, um, partners were refused access to ho hospital visiting rights. They were kicked out of family of of their partners' homes when the when the when the parent the family of the deceased partner basically their wills weren't recognised, their rights weren't recognised as partners. Before we had relationship recognition. And, and the pandemic really drove marriage equality in quite an exceptional way. I think also because to of the injustice of losing oh your partner God. and then being evicted from your home. Yeah, and I, yeah, we yeah, know. Yeah. I know many of these stories where yeah. somebody lost their partner and then the family swooped in and took their home back yeah. because they had no rights. So that's very interesting. I never joined that dot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can you can draw a line from to 2015 marriage equality in Ireland right back to the AIDS pandemic. I mean, people were talking about recognition of, of same sex relationships before the pandemic, but it really accelerated. And a lot of activism accelerated in Ireland, 
community activism, and I'm not just talking about the LGBT community, inner city drug using communities who were, dis- as I said, were disproportionately affected. They were affected. really disproportionately affected, weren't uh, they? Yeah, and it really sort of opened up questions about, you know, urban planning, about advantage, social advantage, all that sort of stuff. I mean, mind you, we're still not there. Of course. There's still pockets, as we all know, just from recent events, there are still pockets of extraordinary social and economic deprivation in our all our urban centres and not just in Dublin that we need to actually tackle and we need to also tackle, tackle the fact that we've recently had an, an upsurge in, in heroin use. I mean, when I was reading that, I thought, what's going on? It's all we'd put that to bed. Yeah. Um, and I do think, too, some of the other positives that I, that I, I were shining a light on as we remember the pandemic and we actually memorialise uh, World AIDS Day is... Um, I think it 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 developed a much greater sense of empathy and compassion from different sectors in society. Okay. People stood up and said we need to do something. And people who stood up and, and they also challenged othering, you know. I mean, now you look back at some of the scary headlines and everything and you just really rank othering um it uh, that and that people engaged in, in in the print and broadcast media and realised that just wouldn't fly today. It just simply wouldn't be tolerated. It's insightful, it's horrible, it's vicious, it's mean, it's bigoted. Um, so I think, like, yes, the pandemic, and we saw it during COVID as well, the pandemic actually encouraged a greater sense of compassion and empathy amongst many people. And you were saying you, you can connect maybe the, the recent pandemic, the global pandemic, COVID, you can, people can connect to... the. They connected in some way. It re-highlighted the, the, what had gone before four decades ago. I mean, there were similar experiences, and yet they weren't. Yes. I mean, we had lo- we didn't have a lockdown during during the AIDS pandemic, but in terms of crude mortality, um, COVID is nothing like what we experienced during um, um, the AIDS pandemic. I mean, as you said. Forty million deaths and thirty-seven million people are living uh, with HIV today, and will are living normal, ordinary lives. Um, although people are still dying of AIDS, and we don't talk about that. Right. And we don't talk about the reasons why still people are still die, dying about uh, dying from AIDS, even in Ireland. Why and, are they? Do- well, because the the paradoxically the advent of antiretroviral therapy that allows people to just take a pill and get on like me and take a pill and you get on with your life and I'd probably just die of box standard heart disease or something. That in many ways mortality, AIDS mortality is just dropped off the page. You know, but we do need to we just need to ask, well, why and why are people actually still getting AIDS? Even in, in, I mean, people are still most people who die of AIDS are now in the global south. And there's a whole myriad of reasons why, why that's happening. Access to anti-retro, expensive antiretroviral therapies are a faulty healthcare system or war, for example. HIV testing in Ukraine has collapsed as a result of the Russian invasion. And that has a knock-on effect even in countries like Ireland because then you've got somebody from Ukraine arriving on the doorstep of Ireland with a new HIV diagnosis or in some cases because it hasn't been diagnosed with an AIDS diagnosis which has all sorts of implications in terms of healthcare and financing and people's sort of well-being. Um, So actually that's fascinating as well. Is Is there lessons we can teach the world from our experience of oppression and shame and stigma. And now that we have a monument going the Phoenix Park on yes, Sunday. Yes, there definitely is. And also too, I think we have a responsibility to our diaspora because we also forget 
this bit fascinates me. I know what you're going to say. Forgotten about our, uh, how we remember the pandemic is the number of um, uh, many men, but some women too, but gay and bisexual men who left Ireland, not just because they needed to uh, access better, better healthcare, because the healthcare facilities, the health, the, the healthcare just simply wasn't available here to the standard that they needed, but they left, as you well know, because of the shame and stigma, the culture of shame and stigma, and the, the states of exclusion that, that exist in Ireland at the time. And they died, in some cases, they died really sad, lonely lives. Yeah. Painful lives somewhere else. Bill Hughes did that. And we, we have to own up to that story. Yeah. We really do have to. We have to own up. We have a duty of care to tell that story. Yeah, And sure. access it in some way. The, the texts are flying in here. I'm a straight man, somewhat older than your guest, who lost several gay friends and I've user using uh, my dear friends before 1990 in Dublin. I want to make the point that we will never know how many people died between 1977 and, say, 2000, because official figures are understated due to other attributed causes of death on death certs. Is that case? Not yeah. unlike what happened with COVID, actually. Comorbidity, so like it's impossible. There's a lot of... And I think the stigma and... The stigma that we're talking about did actually impact. I mean, just think of a pop star like Liberace, actually, they tried to actually change his death cert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. This, I want to mention this as well, because we both know about this, just to say an Irish documentary about contemporary stories of people living with HIV today in Ireland is on Netflix from the 1st of December, World AIDS Day. It's called How to Tell a Secret, directed by IFTA award-winning Anna Rogers. I think you're in it, are you? And artist Sean Dunn. The film uses uh, genre-blurring storytelling techniques to expose the social stigma around what it's like to live with HIV today. Veda's in it. We've loads of friends. It's a great documentary yeah. and it should be seen by everyone on World AIDS Day. And it's on World AIDS Day, 1st of December. Um, so what does the monument look like? Let's get a little bit, let's get really gay on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially, if you can imagine, an AIDS red ribbon. Oh, okay. But it's the ends of it are splayed out, and, it, and it sort of makes for seating, and it's going to be in the people. Oh, it makes co- for seating. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Can, you can reflect. But I do think you know we're talking about the physical monument. I also think too it's incumbent to say that we the building the monument is only the beginning of the process. Okay. So where do you see it going? The monument, the physical monument, is the start of how we really memorialise the pandemic and not the end. And I think after that, we need to, well, it's how the, the value in peop- that people put on the monument will actually play out in ways that hopefully we don't even imagine and will entertain us and, and spark our curiosity. But I think we also need to... Um, we need to democratise access to AIDS archives, HIV and AIDS archives in country. For example, Dublin Diocesan, the Roman Catholic Church have extensive AIDS archives in, in Ireland. They need to be made publicly accessible. HIV Ireland's uh, archives need to be digitised. A lot of it is fragile. The um, archives of the Irish AIDS archives in the Irish Career Archive in the National Library of Ireland wow. aren't publicly accessible. They need to be digitised, catalogued and digitised, made accessible, not just to the general public, to broadcasters, to academics, to students. Uh, and other smaller little archives, the quilts, inner city drug using communities created quilt panels. Yes. They're extraordinary. They're, they're extraordinarily poignant uh, physical memories of the AIDS pandemic. 
and you know they require preservation yes. they should be digitized um, and I would actually suggest to anyone listening that I think the time's ripe now to to consider sort of cultural interventions I know you're a big fan of Russell T Davis It's a Sin yeah. and I mean look at the conversations as It's that a created, Sin sparked yeah. Yeah. Um, as a result of this really really uh, exciting uh, forehand or drama and I think we need more of that sort of stuff So it's World AIDS Day this Friday the 1st of December you have a few events going on this tonight you have something happening is that correct and people can watch it on GCN.ie That's right So tell me what you're doing tonight at Google um, It's called Monument to a Plague Memorialising the AIDS Pandemic and it's a col- collaboration between HV Ireland Asset uh, World Day um, the Irish Career Archive uh, and Google it's on in the Foundry and Google and GCN and Google will be live streaming it So you can watch it live stream GCN.ie and Google will be live streaming Tony Welch uh, always an inspiration Pleasure, Brandon. Always a pl- absolute pleasure. Never sure. Have a great week in Ireland. Thank and you. I'll see you very soon. Let's take a break. My guests this morning join me from Dunmanway in West Cork and they put together an incredible exhibition, 300 Years of the Wedding Dress. Good morning, Michelle O'Mahony and Gwen McQuirk. How are you? Good, Good morning, morning Brian. Thank you for having us on. It's oh, lovely th- cold Dunmanway this morning. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> not so warm up here either, let me tell you. How are you doing? We're good. Thank you very much. Great, great. Thank you so much for taking the call. Okay, this project is a great meeting of minds. Um, So, first of all, how did you meet? Well, I suppose uh, myself (laughs) and Gwen met at the Dunmanway Historical Association. We were at a meeting to discuss how the future of Dunmanway Historical Association would go forward and how we could come up with some fundraising ideas. And Gwen mentioned she had a private collection of dresses and we linked that with the fact that the Manway Historical Association had compiled before COVID two booklets of old black and white photographs to do with weddings. Oh. And we sold them in the local community as wedding pictorials. So we decided we'd link both. And we came up with the idea of three centuries of wedding dresses, the dress. And we it's basically a case of a meeting of minds. The historian with a passion for history and fashion with the couturier and costumier Gwen. Yeah, so that's what's kind of really interesting. It's really authentic, which is the word du jour from America, in that you're a historian, Michelle, and you're a costume yes. designer. So this is this is the real deal. We know this is, we're going to get re- like a real insight into the history of, of weddings. Yes. Well, def- um, definitely, I think I'm approaching it from the point of view of how history can be read through a dress. The way we wed, yeah, the way we were, yeah. how would you read a dress? What does that tell us about society? Um, and the wedding dress is a great communicator of fashion trends. It's a great community of, uh, communicator of society, society's norms, what people perceived at the time, viewpoints they held. And it's also a great insight into class structure, you know, the difference between the wedding dress of the rich and famous to how that influenced the wedding dress of the ordinary person. Um, the various textiles that were used and Gwen will be able to take you through all the everything from bare bosoms to raising hemlines. <laughs> I can talk now. about the society in the background. Now listen, uh, <laughs> I have to get this mention in for sure. You are Dunmanway and many people will know this, I didn't know this, uh, home or birthplace of the Sam Maguire. Yes, Dunmanway is the hometown of Sam Maguire. And I suppose, Brendan, one of the things that Dunmanway likes is that we don't mind sharing the cup around <laughs> the country. Good for you. Um, because we have Sam the Man, um, and it's the hometown of Sam Maguire, which a lot of people don't realise. No, it's amazing. And so that probably 
does that fuel a little bit, add sort of, uh, I suppose, fuel to the flame of the historical association in a man way that sort of pushes you along? Yes, it yeah, does, yeah. it does. Um, we've, we've got um, a Sam Maguire trail, we've got walking, a walking tour um, for people who like going out in the countryside because Sam Maguire's home place is in the countryside in a place called Malabreca and there's some lovely walks up through the woods and up through the mountains that way. So it adds a whole other dimension outside of the, the, what we would remember Sam Maguire for with the GAA and the trophy. It brings a whole element of tourism into the area as well, which is very good for the area. And that's what I suppose I'm going, going a full circle before we dive into the dresses because this exhibition is a fundraiser for the Historical Association of the Manway, is that right? Yes, yes, it's a fundraiser, so all the proceeds from the event will be going to the Manway Historical Association to make sure that we can continue, they can continue to have a presence in the town as they act almost like the one-stop um, tourist information point in the town as well. And they do dig deep into the various characters of the town and Sam Maguire being one of them. Brilliant. So it's everything and all the proceeds will go Brilliant. to the Historical Association. Both myself and Gwen have given our time free in organising the event. Well done. Uh, so Gwen, you collect wedding dresses. I'm just going to jump straight yes, in I there. Yes, Go on. <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think um, I'm originally from Dublin, so I moved to West Cork um, about a year, over a year ago. My mum is from Kinsale, yes. Um, I live a little bit outside the Manway, but my mum is from Kinsale, so um, my grandmother was a dressmaker. So I just grew up um, listening to all these stories about dresses, and my mum tells these amazing stories too, about things were made. And then my mum talks about her wedding dress, and uh, so I, I feel I'm back to my roots now. But yeah. um, I went, I studied fashion design um, at NCAD. And then while I was there, there was a competition for wedding dress of the year. And that was on the late, late show a long time ago. Wow. Um, that was when Gay, when Gay Byrne um, hosted it. Yeah. And um, then people started to ring the college and then I started to make these dresses. And um, so, but I left Ireland quite young Um I went to Italy and I worked in fashion there. Great. And then I moved to Verona and then I started working in costume there. But I've always been a collector of lace. But I started to seriously collect about 2015. And then I did a fashion shoot with um, a photographer. A friend of mine, and we did in a beautiful hotel in Innsbruck in Austria. And tell me this, so how many wedding dresses do you mm-hmm. have in your collection now? I think we're going to be showing about 20. Yeah. yeah. I still have, because I restore them. So I've Amazing. restored about those. And uh, the oldest one we have, yeah, go ahead. So no, but I remember, so I don't know if we're a similar age, but in the 80s, my mother made both my sister's wedding dresses. My grandmother made the bridesmaids dresses. So part of our culture as a family was going to buy the pattern, going to buy the fabric. I remember one year yes. the fabric was stolen out of the back of the car. I remember there was drama in the house. But the whole, <laughs> the, the front room or the parlour in my grandmother's and my mother's then would be completely taken over with patterns and cutting because they're, they're huge dresses as well. So it was very much part yes. of our culture, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's, we're losing all those skills, you know? Yeah. Um, and you have lovely memories and obviously that's how you got into fashion design, yeah, you know, it's all input. And um, yeah, and I, yeah, I always remember my grandmother had this old, you know, 1920s machine. Yeah. And the singer song just, machine. Yeah. 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 Here it going. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, the dress, 
the dress I have actually was pre. It's all the oldest one, the one that's eighteen sixty. Is all handmade. Of like course, it would no, be. Yeah. So it's before, because the, the machine was invented in eighteen fifty one, uh, but it really became common in eighteen sixty five. That's why you have all the the big dress dresses. But yeah, the eighties people had uh, we call them a meringue dress. Yeah. So we have a couple of those as well. Amazing. So okay, so uh, what? Tell us, okay, tell us, let's go back now. You have dresses, your oldest dresses from 1860. What's it like? Yeah. It's, um, I got it in, from a dealer in in England. It was from the um, Costume Society. So this lady had this dress. We couldn't date it because the, the, the fabric is so, like, it's like a muslin. It's, it's so delicate, like a cobweb. Really? And, um, yeah. And so I've taken it apart only recently because I literally bought it in 2018. The lady gave it to me to restore because she couldn't sell it because it had been damaged. And I'm taking it apart and I'm seeing the work of these two two seamstresses. Like the really old one, every single one is just... um, Stunning. Stitched lace made by hand. So it's just like a muslin. I even thought the fabric, we thought the fabric was older. I could have even gone back even before 1840. Because wow. people, you know, people... Reused, of course. things away. Yeah. Yes, of course. Cause, and, um, and so we, I dated it about 1860 because it's not quite the crinoline style. It's quite flat in the front and then it pulls on the floor at the back. And so that would have been just before the development of the bustle. The back of the dress got bigger and bigger and bigger and then you get the, you know, the big bustle area where... Um, would you, you call that? So would you call that 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 would be Edward, Edwardian the bustle? No, the, earlier, earlier, yeah. Okay. Queen Victoria died in nineteen hundred and one, so that would be still that era. And would anybody and even wear Edwardian. a bustle now? Do you think? <laughs> I think that'd be fab, <laughs> wouldn't know. it? What did <laughs> just tell me, so socially, um, Michelle? What did the bustle tell us about uh, women's rights or, or where we were as a society then? What do those dresses well, I, explain? I suppose I can take it back a little bit even before the bustle. So in the 17th century um, and the early 18th century and a little bit into the 19th century, um, w- the bustle were traditionally associated with the back. There was actually a pannier, which would have been at the side on the hips. So it almost was like two saddlebags on your hips. So if you can imagine the traditional bustle, only one on each side. So it really made the skirt look maybe three, four foot wide. Oh, yes. And you would have a flat panel in the front then that it would just drape straight down to the floor. So I kind of, in my head, I have, I have Marie Antoinette in my head, right? My, exactly. Yeah. So you're thinking that era, that Baroque. And what that basically told people was, look at the front panel of my dress. I have this great big wide frame and the more luxurious the fabric, the richer you were. Wow. So it was your, your way of displaying to the world how rich you were hmm. with the embroidery, with the filigree, with the detailing. And it also then I discovered recently, it was something I never really thought of, was how that affected social etiquette. Because oh, yeah. if you can imagine the width of that dress, it yeah. could have been three, four foot wide, a Marie Antoinette dress. When you went to a ball and you had to sit down, how did you sit down with the width of it? Yeah. So I was speaking to an etiquette specialist who's actually coming and giving a talk on Saturday Fantastic. to us at the event. And she explained that the wider the dress meant the wider the place settings. So they had to think very carefully about where they would position a woman at the dining table because her place setting had to be much wider to allow room for the dress because otherwise whoever was sitting next to her was going to be elbowed and hit with the side hoops. <laughs> Gradually then the panniers moved away 
and then we went to the bustle. And gradually then, as you move into the Edwardian era in the early 1900s with the death of Queen Victoria, you have the suffragette movement and you have more female emancipation. So as women emancipated and got the vote and the suffragette movement and we got our voice, so to speak, so too did the restrictions of panniers and bustles and cages and all these petticoats, they all sort of gradually dissipated into the more fluid styles of the Edwardian era. So again, all the restrictions, if you could think of restrictions wow. on female in society, yeah. all of that progressed with fashion to a certain extent. You can you can follow trends and you can follow yeah. society. It's almost like reading a dress, is how I say it to people. If you read the dress yeah. and you know what you're looking for, with a trained eye, you can really trace yeah. society you know, as, and as, as li- sexual liberation occurred in the 60s, hem lengths went up, you know, all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, they did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? But this jumped out at me and I like to think I know my bits and bobs, but I did not know this. Queen Victoria set the trend for the white wedding dress and it was not really yes. anything to yes. do with whether or not you were a virgin, which was what we believe growing up, right? It, it mm-hmm. wasn't about that. Tell me about that. So I suppose no, I can if I take... Yeah, go on. When you what, jump in there. Oh, can I jump in? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all so, just so excited. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. Yeah, thank you. No, but um, yeah, it really was because before the Queen Victoria, people did not get married in white if they were noble or royal. They wore gold and silver. And um, and I'm fascinated just by that, just on up, that. Yeah. What kind of gold and silver? Where did you get gold and silver fabrics back then? It wasn't fabric, it was they embroidered wow. like velvet and silk, they embroidered it and it, and the guys were just as decorative as the girls, you know, the, um, they were just showing off power and wealth. Yes. And so Queen Victoria was already queen, she married for love, she didn't have to, you know, dress to show off that. And, and obviously so she's, she, she's famously the richest woman in the land, so she doesn't need to show her wealth, <laughs> yes, right? so she doesn't have to. Yeah. And so... She just chose a, a design of the day, which was like a, a, a white dress, a ball gown, you know, 1840 style. And then that start, started the trend. And then the other trend was that she used only English silk and English lace, which was Honiton lace from Devon. And then that started a whole thing of lace making, which also filtered into Ireland. And that's how all the wonderful lace schools started. My grandmother was a lace maker. So it, she started that whole thing. I mean, they would have worn white dresses, but probably white dresses were worn by like debutantes being presented at court. If you've seen Bridgerton, you know, those, they would, uh, it was for young girls. They might have worn uh, red even, or they might have worn, I think in the 18th century, they might have worn pink for younger girls or blue. Yes. But the white dresses just continued until... Yeah, still today, we still want it. <laughs> and then as we move, we, let's flick forward in, in history. You have a wedding dress from 1934. So just be f- just in between the two world wars. And it's very glamorous because people, mm. this is a kind of a, I, I, I read of this recently of people in the 30s were starting to see Hollywood and be inspired by it. Yes, I have a dress that's 1934 and it's, um, I got it from America, but it's, it's a synthetic, now not synthetic what we think today was the early synthetic, which was rayon. So it was a rayon satin. So people were going to the cinema, also in Ireland, and looking at these dresses, very finger hugging with a very long train. And, um, and they wanted to copy that. So they got 
went to their local dressmaker or they bought things off the peg. Um, so they would have looked at, you know, gone to the cinema. And uh, there's a lot of examples of wedding dresses, you know, from the 1930s films. Yeah. And that would, they, it was Hollywood set the trend in fashion. It wasn't being inspired by royalty or... Um, not until we got to Diana, but yeah. that, that's a whole other conversation. But just before we skip that far <laughs> forward, Michelle, the world, so then all of a sudden we have World War Two and, and we have rationing and we have no fabric. So what did people do for wedding dresses then? Well, what people did back then was they went to their local tailor and dressmaker and they decided they would get a suit. So I know with my own grandmother, she explained to me that during the, the late 1930s, early 1940s, people would get a tweed suit and it would be their best Sunday best suit and they would use that for their wedding and then it would be used for christening subsequent weddings, um, their Sunday best suit. Um, and they, they would manage it from that or they would repurpose suits and clothing that they already had. I know my grandmother as well used to do a little bit of alterations on the side um, in the 1940s during the time of the rations and she would tell me that she would often get um, suits in from people, the skirt of one, the jacket of another, and she would just have to alter them together. So they, they were inventive and they were creative, but it tended to be, in Ireland at the time, it was more of a suit that they would use. They called it a costume, right didn't they? Pardon? It was called a costume. Yes, they had their costume, and it was their Sunday best, and it came out for Christmas, Easter, Yeah family christenings and other family weddings. There was no such thing as I've been seen in that outfit before when you went to a local <laughs> wedding. But weddings during the 1930s were a quieter affair in Ireland at the time. I remember my dad had one good, my granddad had a good suit and so it was such, it was so rarely used. My grandmother used to save money in the inside pocket of it. And there's a story about somebody finding the money, but that's for another day's work. Um, then as we... We move up into Grace Kelly's iconic 1956 wedding dress and we touched on it there, the influence of um, Hollywood. And it, then it kind of, all, all bets are off then really, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, can I come in on that one? Yeah, go on. Because I have a dress. Yeah. I have a dress that's 1956 and that was that style and that she started and then brought back the lace. Describe so that style was, just so people will know what you mean. So when... Um, Grace actually wasn't made by a French designer. It was actually a Hollywood costume designer called um, that, who did all her costumes, and they actually sponsored the dress because they wanted like full coverage of the Very event, good. Yeah. yeah, and publicity. And so, um, yeah, so I I actually worked on a shoot with a dress that was similar, and we're going to show it in the Dunmanway exhibition. So we, I loved it because. Um, we the location was in a hotel that kind of looked like the you know Monaco Palace and the model looked like Grace Kelly you know at the window and the dress, and the, the, the dress is, is is sleeveless isn't it with a very 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 full length floor length skirt full she, no she wasn't sleeveless Sleep, people covered their arms oh. right up to yeah yeah if you went to church so she had complete like um, lace uh really covered up, very much influenced. You can see Kate Middleton's dress right. um, in 2011 and you can see the influence of that. And she brought back lace again and the covered up dress, you know, covering the sleeves again because we just, I think maybe in the, the 2000s and noughties, the dresses just kept getting lower and lower. <laughs> yeah. But now, you know, anything goes, people can pick a themed wedding, they can pick the 30s, they can pick the 50s, they can pick Do you have, a, as a designer and a costumier, Gwen, do you have a favourite? 
Yes. I'm, I would have said the 50s one because of the fashion shoot and working with this photographer. But now I've restored this 1860s dress and just taking it apart and saying, oh, my Lord, here are my hands, a woman's hands, 180 years ago. Wow, that's um, amazing, isn't doing it? Doing the same thing. And that's very, yeah, I think that's really that. I think that's my favourite. And I think that'll be the star of the show for me anyway. But there's wonderful things to see. Uh, yeah, it's what's 180 years old. It was just amazing. Michelle, do you have a favourite dress? Um, I, th- I think so, yes. The, the one that um, I love all of Gwyn's in the collection, but yesterday I had to collect one from um, a local person oh, whose mother, um, her photograph was on this pictorial history of Domenway. And it is the prettiest, most ornate. It's a mini dress. Wow. from about 1965, 66. Yeah. And it is just the cutest thing ever. And when I picked it up yesterday and looked at it and the amount of intricate embroidery and lace on it, um, I think that's actually my favourite. It's something completely different to the others. Um, it's just a short sort of skater dress, but it's, it's just so dainty and so nice. I think that's actually my favourite. Did she wear a little pillar box hat in the picture? Um, Can you no- remember? No, she did. She didn't wear a pillar box hat with it. But we do have another dress from another lady yeah. locally donated, and it's almost like a Princess Diana style hat from the late nineteen seventies right. with a lovely lace slip dress as well. So oh, I remember got... them well. Remember the Diana hats with the wedding dresses, the white hats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the ones with the lace in the front and the little bow with the lace at the back. It's one of those little ones. When we may giggle, but they'll be back. <laughs> they always do, don't they? <laughs> but look, it's an, it sounds incredible. It really does. I mean, I, I, you've got me right in my sweet spot here talking about history. And, and frocks, particularly these ornate, you know, pieces of art, really, aren't they? Yes, yes I think they're, so. They're a combination yeah. of art and art and history. Yes, yeah, and I tell you, I mean, I'm talking to the real deal. I mean, this is what I have here now: history and the costumier. So you really, it, it, will you be at the exhibition at the weekend? Can people meet you there? Oh yes, we're we're definitely going to be there. I know Gwyn Gwyn is going to give a presentation on each of the three days. Oh, I'll be there as well to talk people through with any queries they have. And then yeah. we also have on Saturday we have a little bit of a Downton Abbey experience with an etiquette specialist telling us all about how the Victorians would have dined at a wedding right up to the Edwardian era, up to the 1940s or thereabouts. And we also have a, a local influencer, a makeup artist called Samantha coming to take people through cosmetics and makeup and Brilliant. that's going to be a, a really nice little talk so it's a fundraising event Sunday, Friday. It's, it's a fundraising event for Dunmanway Historical Association and Michelle O'Mahony uh, historian and consultant and Gwen McGuire couturier and costumier um, it's on it's three centuries of weddings on in Dunmanway this Friday the first right the way through till Sunday 5pm and um, uh, tickets where can people get tickets by the way quickly Tickets are available at the door. So as you as you come in, tickets are Gorgeous. five euro each at the door. That was a really wonderful conversation. Have a great weekend. I hope it's a huge success. Thanks a million. Let's take a break. Uh, I'm already laughing this morning with my next guest. As I mentioned, uh, he's been awarded an honorary doctorate for his outstanding contribution to the field of dementia, which is fantastic. What makes it poignant um, is that uh, he was diagnosed, as I mentioned just before the break, with dementia in 2017, at just the age of 53. Good morning, Kevin Quaid. Delighted to meet you. Great to be here. Thank you so much for coming in. Delighted. You're, you're a busy man. Yeah, it's a busy time. It's a busy time of the year for advocacy work, believe it or not. I bet you. Um, it's become my life, I suppose, since I've been diagnosed. So take me back, 53 years of age, 
just a year off where I'm sitting right now. Um, so it, it really struck me. Uh, dementia is in my family. My mum is suffering from dementia at the, okay. now and we're just navigating it. So it's very personal to me as well, this story. Um, so what's it like? You're diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. So just explain that to us. Um, I suppose if I, to, to start the story, we were in Australia and at the age of 50, a doctor came to my bedside. I was after being in hospital four or five times with pretty serious illnesses over the period of a year and a half. Viral meningitis, Borholm's disease, Stagnose Paget's disease, like the blood flu, things like that. And one of the doctors was looking at not why I was there with that specific illness at the time, but why I was coming so often. And he came to the side of my bed and he said to me, when you go back to Ireland, will you get yourself checked out for early onset Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? Now, he said, I could be a mile off here. And the only reason that it kind of struck a chord with me was because my uncle Dave, who I was very close to in America, he had passed away from Alzheimer's. So I came back to we came back to Ireland, went to my doctor, organised a trip to my neurologist and I said, look, I'm fine. You know, there's no, there's no problem. And uh, I went to, we came home in February. I went to following November. She did a lumbar puncture, came back that I had um, Parkinson's. And I was being sent for scan after scan after scan. And I really didn't understand why. And then I was sent for a scan called the DAT scan. It's capital D, small a, capital T. And that came back positive for Louis body dementia. But that day, I didn't hear the word Louis or I didn't hear the word body. All I had was dementia. And like so many poor people out there think, dementia equals Alzheimer's equals memory loss. I don't fit the bill. And I said, you're mad. I couldn't possibly have dementia. And that is pretty much where my journey began. So slowly but surely... Um, Before you go on, tell me, what, what were your symptoms up to that point? I was beginning to have a lot of uh, nightmares. I was beginning to see things that I was wondering whether they were there or not. I was questioning... I was questioning myself a lot. My spatial awareness was beginning to go from there. You know, there was a lot of subtle things, blood pressure problems. I had a lot of constipation, there was problems there. And there was an awful lot of small things which I later learned were red flags. Like, say for argument's sake, if someone goes is going to the chemist constantly for different medications for constipation. I'm not saying everyone that has constipation has blood pressure, has uh, dementia. They don't. But if the medications aren't working, we need to start digging deeper. Okay. And it's the same with blood pressure. And I just we just noticed things weren't right. How did you feel when did you feel aha you've cracked it you knew what was wrong or did you were you did you was it the end of the road for you how did you feel when you got the diagnosis devastated devastated absolutely the day, the day I was diagnosed I was devastated my own, the only question I had was how long, how long have I left to live that was it wow that was it I didn't I didn't ask about treatments I didn't ask how long have I left. That was how little I knew about Louis body dementia. What did the doctor say when you said that? And 
I don't really know, to be honest with you. We left in shock that day. I bet. And uh, after maybe a week, I got, um, I sent for information off the Louis Body Society in England. And they sent me four or five, four A, A four pages, which didn't make great sense to me, to be honest with you. But my de- I, I, my GP then recommended that I meet a dementia advisor. Her name was Amy Murphy. I actually called her Angel Amy Murphy. <laughs> and Amy introduced me to the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Okay. And I said, but I don't have Alzheimer's. But the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland... They're such a wonderful organisation. They just don't deal in Alzheimer's. That's just the name. They deal in every type of dementia straight across the board. And it was there and then that my new life, my new life began. You call it a new life, do you? It's a complete... I came to a crossroads that day. And if I turn left, I was going to continue with my old life. And if I turn right, my new life began. And I was up and down to my neurologist in Cork and keeping notes of them every six weeks, maybe every two months. And one of them asked me to write a book. And, you know, I kind of, I, I don't take myself too seriously. I said to the doctor, no, I said, hang on a second. I'm the one with dementia and you're asking me to write a book. <laughs> Should we switch tables here? And I wrote the first book called Louis Boy, Dementia Survival of Me. And the reason I did it was... He said, it's going to help us. You're, you're so young, you don't fit the criteria at the t- you know, at well, that that's time. what's really struck me. We're the, we're the same generation. I'm mm. really struck by it because my mum, as I mentioned to you, is, is suffering from dementia. Uh, tell me, just to clear up, Louis body dementia, what is that? I suppose there's 400 different types of dementia, number one. Okay. There is no such thing as a diagnosis of dementia. There is no such thing as a diagnosis of a type of dementia. Now, there's going to be a lot of raised eyebrows this morning when that, after I'm making that statement. Yeah, can you explain that to me? You have to be told the type of dementia. You have to. It's imperative. Because let's compare it to cancer. If I went in in the morning and I was told I had cancer or a touch cancer, and it's because of my age, We'll see you later. We'll see you next week. We'll see you as well. That would not be accepted. It's the same with dementia. And if you think about it logically, right, if someone is given a diagnosis of dementia or a touch of dementia because of their age, would the same happen with cancer? No. They'd be told the type, the medication. There'd be a plan going forward. You know, is it due six weeks to live, due six years to live? You know, it's nothing on him all. It's more life. But at least you know, at least you know where you are with it. And that is where, like, right, I suffer nightmares. I suffer hallucinations. Um, the nightmares with Louis by dementia can be very frightening. Um, I can wake up at night. I won't know my wife. I won't know where I am. But that has changed in the last four months, believe it or not. Why? I came across hidden hearing. Wow. I went to them. They tested my hearing. I got hearing aids. I actually have many. <laughs> you can't yet. even see them. Um, with the last four months, I will still have nightmares. But when I wake at night, I now know where I am. 
I now know who I am. It might take me a little bit longer. That's so interesting because you can hear surrounding and it clears up the, the confusion quicker. I think the biggest difference they have made is, and for people who have Louis by dementia, they'll probably recognise this, that if you're in a very quiet room by day, and I mean there's no noise, the noise that's inside in your head will drive you insane. But because I have the hearing aids in, that noise is gone. I, I remember Jim in Valencolic in Cork. He said to me, be sure now, he said, you have to put the hearing aids in every morning. And I can assure you, at the very first thing I do, and when you put them in, there's a little bit of music. So if you ever heard the expression, music to my ears, <laughs> that's exactly what. But the difference it has made to my life. Amazing. Is amazing. And it all ties up. With, it's amazing the way things come around. And we were, we were here in, I'm chair of the Irish Dementia Working Group for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. There's some man. <laughs> like... And I'm with the Dementia Research Advisory Team as well. And we were in Dublin um, yesterday. But during a recent trip to a conference in Helsinki, we had a poster there. And on the, on, on the poster, the recommendation was, say, uh, if I get diagnosed today, not necessarily the neurologist, but the neurologist receptionist will ring up in a week's time and say, can I speak to Kevin? Hi, Kevin, how are you doing? You got a diagnosis a week ago or 10 days ago. How are you feeling? And if I'm feeling okay with it, you say, right, no. Do you know what we're going to do? We'll get your hearing checked. We'll get your eyesight checked. We'll get your bloods checked. We'll form a complete picture and we can take it from there. And if I can just take a step back for one second. If you're told your loved one has dementia or a type of dementia, and are given medication. Is it for Alzheimer's? Is it for front temporal? Is it for vascular? I'm not going to name the 400 of them, but I can't name it because I don't know. But you know what I mean. You have to get the right technology. You really, really do. And like families play, families play an awfully important part in this. Mm -hmm. And you have to talk to the family. Take... A case of a man, say, or a woman in their late 80s and they are recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's and the family is told to have a touch of dementia. Should they be told? Depending on their quality of life, maybe not. Every, every single circumstance is different. But their family has a right to know the type mm -hmm. so as they know the signs of what to watch out for, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the medication to take. And... It's simple things that can make someone's life so much better. Tell, tell me this. Uh, what's it like for you? Now? You just seem amazing. You're happy, bright, uh, really engaging. So you're, you are a happy person. I can see that. You're oozing joy. What's it like for you living with this Louis body dementia? Um, to be honest with you, when I'm doing my advocacy work, it's like short time. Oh, really? You know, you're doing an interview, you're on stage at a conference and you just seem to put your best foot forward. Uh, I've often said that it's a hard thing to say, but I don't live with it. I have it. It's my wife, Alina, who lives with it. Um, 
She sees it 24-7. And, like, I might say to Helena, just for argument's sake, I'd say, my he- I'm turning up the television louder, you know, um, or my hearing is not as good, or my sight is not as good, or my nightmares are getting more so, or whatever the case may be. And she'll say, yeah, I've copped that. And I'd say to her, how long have you seen that? Oh, and yeah. she'd say, yeah, I've noticed it for the last six weeks. So something I'll notice today, oh, wow. the person who's caring for the person with dementia will have seen the progression far in advance. And that's that's tough to watch Yeah, your loved one go through that. So that's why I always say, ask me what it's like to have it, but to live with it, yeah. it's my wife. Um, and what what is it like for her? She is, is it safe to, can we use the word carer? I mean, she's your wife, obviously, but would, do you, are you comfortable with that word? Does she? Oh, she is. I'd be less, I'd be less for her. Less for her. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely less for her. Um, we're a team. We're a team. We're yeah. a team. Yeah. Like, we leave here today and we go to... We go to the airport, we're going to the European Parliament tomorrow. For See, the you're open. dropping all these, these, uh, these, these advocacy bombs on me. I better get into this. You know, between Helsinki and Brussels and what have you. Well, so I'll throw in a few more. I want, I, want, I want to ask you about discussions people should have with their family. I also want to make sure I ask you how people should deal with people with dementia because mm. I have personal experience of myself. But come, give me the advocacy work. Tell me about that. How, first of all, you're the chair. I'm I Right, I'm the chair of the... Irish Dementia Working Group for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland who saved my life. Just as simple as that, to save my life. And anyone, anyone that has any doubts or think for one second that they may have a problem or their lover may have a problem with dementia, the free phone number is 1-800-341-341. Ring the helpline. They're volunteers. They're fabulous volunteers. I'm vice chair of the European Working Group for Alzheimer's Europe. I co-founded Louis Valley Island, which will be launched next year. I'm on my third book. Um, I am involved in so much research. Uh, as I said, I've been a member of the Dementia Research Advisory Team. And I was on a European call the other day, and we are one of the leading countries. In are Europe. we? We are one of the leading countries in Europe. We're way up there. Like that poster that we had in Helsinki at the conference earlier this year, the amount of people that came around and looked at it, and it was the simple things that can make the life so easy. But I think people need the stigma that's around it and the fear that's around. Um, it's the fear. Yeah. If you go into a doctor this morning at 11 o'clock and you're given a diagnosis of any type of dementia, when you come out at half past 11, you're still the same person. Nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is that thing that has been needling in your head at night, the problems you've been having, now there's a name to them. Now you can do something about it. And I cannot emphasize enough, get the diagnosis early. Is it empowering? It's unbelievable. I'm I'm a new man, I'm a different man. But you've got to get an early diagnosis 
and you've got to get a proper diagnosis. And never, ever, ever leave a medical practitioner's office with more questions than answers. Make sure everything you want to know when you go in, you know coming out. Don't come up more confused than when you go in. That's great advice. And actually bring someone with you if you can't, if, if you're overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and write it Definitely. down. If you're overwhelmed, write it down. That's great advice. So are you on medication? I am. I was on 19 different medications. Wow. And I went to see my neurologist. She took one look at me and she said, oh, my God, she's such a brilliant uh, neurologist. She's on no tool in the Mercy in Cork. This was about five years ago, and she admitted admitted me I was taken to the acute stroke ward, and I was taken off of 19... I was Sorry, I was on 19 medications. I was taken off of 13 of the 19 medications. So I'm actually only on two different types of medication for my Lewy bodies. One is the Nizapel, and that's for the hallucinations that I have, and the other is the Rivetrol. Now, what the Rivetrol does in my case is it reduces the severity of the nightmares, even though I take 10 of them now at night. But I have this disease, I'm about seven, eight years, I suppose. So I'm booking the trend there as well. Really <laughs> are. Um, but you've got to keep the brain active, right? Then. You have to, you yeah. have to. You have. I mean, if you taught me 15 years ago that you'd be the author of two books and you have a third one sat there at home, I would have said, Brendan, will you please see someone you need help? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're amazing and really inspiring. So early diagnosis is key. Your message is really clear and you are a brilliant um, example of how positive it can be. You say you live semi-independent and you described that you're a mm. team with your wife. Um Discussions to have with your family. I mean, we've just come through it. And I was saying, God, the social workers are almost like Kofi Annan. They're like diplomats in family members, you know. So what are the important discussions to have with family? I suppose diagnosis or, you know, accepting or admitting or in some way seeking help. That's the phrase, right? And then what are the next stages? Important things like where do you see yourself? Where is this going? Yeah. You know, when is it time to accept more care? Like, how do you have those conversations with your family? That's, I really went into that in my in my first book, Louis Biodimension Survival of Me, and there were difficult conversations to have because I have three wonderful kids and three wonderful stepkids and seven grandchildren. Wow. Now, obviously, the grandkids are too young, but... We discussed everything from when the time comes that I may have to go to a care home. Um, I've donated my body to science and I've told the kids about that. I spoke about fun- uh, my funeral and I wanted to be cremated. My youngest son, Kevin, couldn't couldn't handle the fact that I was to be cremated. And I thought, you know, that would be no problem. So, you know, we found ways around them. Power of a turn there. We got all those discussions out of the way. Power of attorney, that's key. It's yeah. so important, isn't yeah. it? But just just that three of our kids are in Australia, three of our kids are in Ireland. And I suppose the most empowering thing about having the discussion as early as is possible. No, you don't get diagnosed and have it tomorrow, maybe within 12 months. or it's Again, every family is, in, is, is different. 
but have the discussions because if something happens to me tomorrow morning, Louis by dementia, you have a tendency to get to get very angry. And if I lash out at Helena in my sleep at night, and if I hit Helena, oh, gosh. Right, it's separate beds. If I did it during the day, God forbid, I would absolutely hate myself. But then it's time for me to go to a, a care home facility. And the kids know what Dad wants. Helena knows what her husband wants. Once the conversations are had, done and dusted and put to bed, it's over. Kevin, where did you get this insight from? I mean, I, I'd love to bring you home and <laughs> introduce you to my family. Where did you get where did you get this strength from? To be honest with you, a lot of it is, you know, strength, but I have to really, really thank the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland because the meetings that we were having you're meeting so many people with different types of dementia, but the diff type doesn't matter. And it's from the experience of others. Like, I'm chair of the working group, and there's members that are no longer with us. And it's sad for me here this morning to be saying that. But I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and I have learned from all them people back along. And going forward, hopefully, people will learn from me. And we're leaving legacies. And it's the same with the, with the research that we're doing. So, you know, if you, can get, if you can get all that stuff out of the way and get families involved, like we're after opening and the New Day Care Centre in Mallow, the Alzheimer's Society opened the New Day Care Centre in Mallow, and... Um, as much as we give out about the government and the opposition and the whole lot here in Ireland, we have some fantastic people. Like I have to, I have to really thank uh, Mary Butler for all she has done for us, and my own local TD who'd be Michael Minehan. I live in Kentork, even though I'm a Limerick member. As I said, <laughs> my wife, someone has to move to Cork. But um, Michael rang me twice about the new daycare centre in Mallow, that people wanted to avail of it. And he rang me back after and he said that the family wanted to pass on their thanks because the services that were there. But that daycare centre was designed specifically because of what the families wanted, not what the staff wanted, not because of what doctors wanted, it was what the families wanted for their loved ones. Try and answer this question for me and I'm asking on behalf of my family as well. Would Kevin have any advice about how to deal with a person who has Louis body and never speaks about it? Someone just asked. It's okay because everyone is different. Okay. A lot of people will, will not want anyone to know. Yeah, true. And there's a fear in it. What I, what I kind of... And this is only this is only my suggestion is if they have that one person, a family member or a friend that they would feel safe in opening up to slowly but surely and to talk about it, it's okay. It's not your fault. You didn't cause it. It must be very, very scary. I want people to be less afraid of this. Yeah. If I could if I could, like, there's between six and a half and 10,000 people in Ireland with Louis Bays at the moment. There's people listening right now that know they have it and they're so afraid. And do you know the biggest problem, Brendan? Is because they look and sound as good as I am and they think people won't believe them. 
to help the people that won't believe them. It's you and your family that matter and your peace of mind. And fa some families are very private and they won't want to talk about it. And that's okay. And again, I'll come back to... If you take Killian and myself, right? I have Louis Bowie dementia. I want no one to know about it. And Helena is watching it. Let Helena pick up the phone and let Helena ring the Alzheimer's Society and say, my husband has it. And this is what my life is like. And that's what the helplines are there for. And, and use them like, you know, like we're, like we're coming up to Christmas, right? And we can wait to see family and friends and the hall that join us. And after two days, you're thinking, oh, my God, will they ever even go home? <laughs> <laughs> and on the website, there is fantastic material on how to, how to get through Christmas, you know. And people that are in care homes and care home facilities, you know, don't forget about them. Yeah. You know, call to see them. Uh, and another thing is, like, when people go into care homes... And we are getting better because even in the last six, seven years, I've seen a paradigm shift since I started with the ASI on the way research is done, literally on everything across the board because they're putting people like me and my wife, not just me and my wife, but all of us who have dementia and our carers and our families front and central. And they're saying, what do you want? You know, like we now have our equal rights, so much, so much good has happened. But, like, when someone goes into um, a care home facility, okay, their name, address, their age, their date of birth, um, their medication, you don't know a person then. Did they have a pet? Did they like music? Did they like poetry? Did they like reading? Did they like photographs? Where was their famous place? There should be a booklet filled out so as you know who's sitting in the bed. Mm. Because music can be such a therapy. Yeah. Four of us went into, um, six of us went into UL on the research project recently. And later in the year, you'll hear the song. We went in to talk about music therapy. Well, we wound up writing a song. Three people with three different dimensions and our, and our carers. And we wrote a song. It's a fabulous song. I'm having a beautiful reaction to you here, May. I thank Kevin. He's, ama he's an amazing advocate and ambassador for LBDs, obviously, uh, Louis Body Dementia. I work with Kevin and he's a giant in the world of uh, Parkinson's and Louis Body Dementia. I'd also like to congratulate Kevin on his recent doctor, Tony and Kate. Parkinson's oh, yeah, advocate, I know yeah. Tony and Kate. Kevin's doing great work. Thanks, Kevin, and keep up the great effort. Another tech, good morning, Brennan. Listening to your wonderful interview with Kevin, Living with Dementia, totally blown away. He's inspirational. Having travelled the journey with a family member, for the past nine years it's a tough road my advice would be don't sweat the small stuff well done Kevin God bless you wonderful interview another people are look, thank you so much Kevin my husband has LB and is in close to the end of my tether I'm now going to reach out to the Alzheimer's Society you've changed my life with this interview oh my god you see wow and the other thing Brendan is and don't ever forget this people like me need a platform and I keep saying it. In the last month, we have been at a conference in Helsinki. I've been at a conference in Luxembourg. I've been at one in Brussels. As I said, after today, I'm, my two favourite days of the year are will be tomorrow and Friday when I'm with, with the, in the European Parliament for European Day with people with disabilities. We have more in common than not in common. 
And as long as people like you keep giving us a platform and our voices, that one person there today that's going to reach out to the helpline, which is one eight hundred three four one three four one. And guess what? I'm not reading it off a book. Hey. <laughs> it's coming straight <laughs> from my memory. <laughs> Kevin, you really are that. You're inspiring. The, your two books, Louis Body Dementia, Survival and Me, is out. And also, I Am Kevin, Not Louis. Love the name of that. It was out in 2020. They're available. Where can people find those books? They're on Amazon and Kindle, but my e- my email address, I can send you signed copies. Now, this, the, the first one is strictly, to be fair about it, for people who have Louis Body Dementia. Yes, okay. But the second one, it makes no difference what kind of disease you have. It's a love... It's, not just because it is my book. It's a lovely Christmas present. It's just about get up and go and what you can achieve. Brilliant. What's like? There's so much living to be done. For Don't let one half an hour of a day in your life for you get a diagnosis define you. There's so much more to you. You're you've so much to give. And the earlier you get the diagnosis, the better off you are. Because if you get it late in life and you were worried about it for 10 years, you're going to say, why didn't they get it 10 years ago? It is like when I went to Australia at the age of 46, people were saying, you're off your head. (laughs) I said, I'd rather be back here in 10 years' time saying, I went and I failed, rather than saying, God, why didn't I go? Kevin, you're an inspiration. So that number again, Alzheimer's Society, is one eight hundred three four one three four. Kevin, quite you have a you have a flight to catch. You're a busy man. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming in. We need to take a break. Thank you, Kevin. Now, my guests this morning spent most of his early life wanting to be an artist and in pursuit of this passion, found another one along the way, working as a tour guide at the Dachau concentration camp. His first solo show in Ireland will open on Saturday at the Source Art Centre in Thurles. It's called Exploding View and he joins me now this morning to tell me about his life in Germany and his return to his native country. Good morning, Gordon Hogan. How are you? Good morning, Brendan. Good to see you. Good to see you. You have a great voice. We're just Thank talking you very about much. That. Good, good morning, you. Ireland. Good Brilliant. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. <laughs> you got that in. Well, be my only chance. And <laughs> <laughs> um, before we talk about the exhibition um, and how you got there, you, you've gone a long way around, haven't you? I've gone on a bit of a long road. Yeah, you a long have. and winding one. Yeah. Um, I suppose I started studying art in Limerick back in the late 90s. Lovely. And then in my second year, went on a student exchange, like a lot of people do, got a taste of Europe and decided to just stay there. So You transferred to our college. I didn't transfer, actually. I just never came home. And <laughs> then um, I was... I competed to get into the Art Academy in Munich and I was uh, encouraged a lot by my professor over there, James Reineking. He was an American sculptor and he suggested that I should stay nothing against Ireland. It's just if you're going to spread your wings, do it away from home. And, you know, he's, he, he could just see I, I kind of needed that. So I got a full time place at the Art Academy and studied there for six years. In so Munich? In Munich at the Academy of Fine Art. Yeah. Did you speak German? I didn't speak a lick of it when I went over. How did you cope? Oh, yes. Uh, now I can speak full fluent German. Wow. Yeah. So that's also a benefit, right? That's kind the of The way you do it is you stay away from the Irish bars. Ah, okay. You work in the beer gardens, you hang out with the Germans, you live a German life. And obviously studying out in art school, you're not writing essays or anything. You're basically hanging out, looking cool, talking some stuff. But um, through that, over the years, I just picked it up. So how did you support yourself financially? 
Um, beer gardens in the summer, that's kind of an Irish tradition that I didn't even realise. A good crack, over. obviously. Great crack, free fru- food, free beer. But you're working so hard, you have no time to spend money. So you just collect it up during the summer. And the academy system in Germany, where I studied anyway, in Munich, was um, very casual. So I would go to my professor and say, listen, I'm stuck for the rent. I got a job in a factory somewhere, packing boxes, whatever. So I'd go and work somewhere for six weeks, pay the rent for the whole winter, come back. So that's the way it was. And then bit by bit, um, as I started to learn German and get better, I could get better jobs. Okay. So was there something, was it just the, the exchange student that, you know, mm-hmm. when I was a teenager, I'd go wherever they'd put me. You just yeah, wanted to well, go Well, I away. chose Munich. Why did I you, want, why? Well, oh, this all, oh, this it, all, it, it was a lady. It was a girl. Oh, okay. <laughs> Had a summer flirt here down in Tip in, in Templemore, where I'm from. Um, <laughs> decided we'd seen each other once or twice. I'd gone over to see her and then I saw that Munich and Limerick had a bit of a, a combination going on, student exchange, the art school in Limerick. So I applied and I said, yeah, I'll go over to Munich for three months. But three months turned into 23 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. So how did Dachau come about? How did you well, it's always been an interest of mine for as long as I can remember. I've, for some strange reason that I'm still trying to answer, I've been very um, attracted to that subject, the human rights element. Right. It's always been a very strong thing for me. And to be honest, in my own experience growing up, I just kind of, not the historical side of it, but I just kind of felt like I need to know this stuff, I need to understand it, and I felt a certain kinship with it. Wow. I just felt a very deep kinship with it. So... Being in Munich all the time, and Dachau is literally just up the road. It's like a 20-minute spin, and Dachau is a gorgeous old town. And you start to realize that I'm bringing a lot of my version of this history to the site. So I just got more and more into it. And then after college, I seriously didn't really want to go into a full art career. I still thought I was a bit too young. Like, who's going to listen to a you know, 25, 26-year-old, really? So I said, right, I'm, I'm going to... That's take... a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, Sorry for young No, no, artists, you're right. So no, you're, that's, um, <laughs> anyway, for me... <laughs> You always have to say it for me. Yeah, of course. Um, I really wanted to delve into it. So I actually realized that a lot of companies were looking for native English speakers. They would make the link to the site. You would go out, do a course at the site with the staff. So I did a, a three-month course at the memorial site. To become a guide, you pass tests, you do exams, you have all this, a reading list and everything. So oh, once so you I do thought that, you just rock up. No, no, no thank quite... God, no, because it could get out of control. It's a very misunderstood site so you need to have some kind of someone there with an actual professional qualification to do these tours because you're coming up against all kinds of opinions impressions passions and you're kind of trying to put them together wow three or four hours each day and you could have someone from one side of the world someone from the other and you might have a group of 20 people 30 people 40 people so you really need to know what you're doing and it was a very um ultimate diplomat yeah, but that that doesn't happen on day one. You really have to learn it. You learn sometimes the hard way, but most of the time it's an amazing experience. It's just so, it's a beautiful site because what makes Dachau so unique and so special is that it's the survivors themselves that set up that site with that intention. That young guys like myself back then who have a passion can actually earn their bread and butter. Okay. Through, you know, telling their story. And that was, you know, once you get into that side of it, it becomes a, you know, for want of a better description, or maybe it is a good one. It's an honourable job. It's beautiful. It's really intense, but really important. Remind listeners of some of the stats about Dachau, where, when it was built. Uh, yeah, Dachau was built in 1933, so that's just after Hitler gets into power. And it's just outside Munich. So was Munich, it the first? It was the first camp, yeah. It was the first camp, but not only the first, it became kind of the... 
Yeah, the kind of school of the SS, most of the guys that went on to run all the major industrial sites in Eastern Europe, they all, you know, learned their trade. It's as simple as that. It sounds cruel, but that's that's really what it was like. They learned their trade in Dachau. So, for example, the guy who ran Auschwitz, uh, Rudolf Huss was his name. Uh, he was commander in Dachau for a few years, did different managerial positions there, and then got promoted to run Auschwitz. So he's the guy who would have been behind the most famous extermination camp that we're all aware of. But it was all interconnected. So Dachau was kind of like the the root of it. And it was all connected to Dachau. So Dachau was actually the first camp to be open and it was one of the last to be liberated also because it's in southern Germany, the last places to be occupied by the Allies as they swept in through Germany at the end of World War II. So it really shows you a full cross-section of the whole 12 years of the Third Reich. That, that really shocked me, 1933 mm-hmm. and liberated in 1945. That's 12, 12 years. years. I mean, yeah. that's... And depending on what year you look at in Dachau, the statistics are different. Like, people who would have been deemed as antisocial, for example, they had a definition that was kind of coined in Dachau, the Pink Triangle for homosexuals, and people from other parts of the so-called Reich. Is that Empire, where the Pink Triangle comes from? That's where it comes from. It's a Dachau thing. Wow. So all these symbols come from Dachau. That's where they kind of worked out the code. You know, how do we do this? How do we divide up groups? What do we do? Because in 1933, it's mainly political people, people of democratic Germans, people from, you know, mainly left-wing political groups, central conservative groups. They were all interned in Dachau. Dachau was where they stamp out resistance. But then it became a place... <clears throat> to stamp out many different forms of resistance and to make an example and to instill fear in Germans. And that was all an internal German thing until 1938. Wow. So everyone in there up until 38 was German. Okay. All of the inmates. So it's, you know, it's a great place to tell the full story. Wow. Wow. I mean, it must have had it taken its toll working there. Even yeah. just listening to this conversation yeah. is unnerving. Oh, yeah. But... I'd say the same for people, and obviously it's not anything like the honourable job that people who work in in the health system do. I but know you need mean. to be a certain personality to do it, I think. Yeah. You know? Now, I couldn't work in a hospital. <laughs> I wouldn't be able for it. I just wouldn't be able for it. But uh, working in that kind of site, as I said earlier, I felt just a certain kinship. And then when you meet survivors, oh, oh, wow. it just gives you so much energy. Would that, you know? uh, would that just happen randomly? You'd be there It would happen randomly. You know, you could be queuing up for the coffee machine and look behind you and one of the guys hey how are you you know weather's a bit you know <laughs> just normal chatting wow but then they also some of the survivors who would be quite active in Dachau and a lot of these guys you have to remember lost their families here they lost their loved ones here this defined their lives so in a strange way and, and, and I think we can all understand this the only place they really feel alive is at the memorial site this is where their story is understood it's not misunderstood they can tell their story they can tell a joke they can bring light back into the darkness and there's one or two survivors that I met there where as more international guests and tourists start to come to the site, which has become hugely popular over the last 10 or 15 years, they started to, uh, the staff and the administration started to provide, you know, access that we might to get to meet survivors, spend an afternoon and do a little kind of Q&A and hang out together. So that's where you really get to hear these stories in a very intimate, intimate setting. And when you were told these things and you basically realise I'm taking the baton from them, and I'm passing it on. So did you feel a responsibility? You know, yeah. Absolutely. What's that feel like? Um, you know, we all have our Monday morning blues. We all have to get out of bed and go. But with five minutes into the site, you're up on the stage again. You're talking, yeah, you're passionate. I, I, I truly loved it. But after 12 years, take what I learned. It was time. Move on. Yeah. You know, let the new generation come in. Did you yeah. know it was time to move on? I did, yeah. How did you know that? 
I just felt it. Mm. Also, the site was changing. It was becoming a different thing. I think you'd need the energy of starting off to deal with how it's changed massively over the last... You what know. did your family make of you working in Dachau? My mother is just... Uh, my mom. she passed away two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, very quick illness, and uh, she was only sick four weeks. So it was just right as my, myself and my wife were moving back. Oh. But uh, no, but she was wonderful. She came over to Munich every summer for years. She came on my tours, and it was just hilarious because... She came uh, on your tours? Oh, she did. And Amazing. She's like four foot nothing, you know? little Protestant gal from Leash and she's there um, just smiling throughout the whole tour because it's her little lad doing the tour and she was she'd tell everyone tell the whole town you know it was just brilliant and if she heard us today sure she'd be delighted oh she'd be absolutely hopping oh so she was proud you were doing that work unbelievably proud she was so proud of it which is the best oh that's wonderful oh she thought it was amazing and we'd sit down together and talk about these things would you oh yeah 100% because my mom came from a Protestant background my dad came from a Catholic background. She They're both from me. like small farms in the middle of the countryside. You know, we grew up. They were like Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, in, essentially. But, you know, it's hard to describe, but they left school early. You know, my dad was a builder. We grew up in a housing estate in Templemore. But I kind of, I think that's what I meant as well, that I had empathy for something in that story because religious division, you know, these kind of discriminations, what we think about other people, what they think about us, all this kind of nonsense. And back in the 80s, when you're a young lad going into primary school, it's very Catholic dominated and we had the troubles in the north and you know I sound like a pretty serious you know no, I, no, you, I, was, I know exactly what you in mean in some way but Everybody I listening knows what you mean to it and yeah. my mother would make fun of those things because my parents weren't necessarily religious oh so she'd make light of it to make she it easier would. she'd go, go up there and go to your confession box there <laughs> that kind of cra- you know and I didn't realise that Protestants don't do these things and Catholics do other things so I didn't really know so I used to kind of sneak along to she'd go to Harvest Thanksgiving Fest once a year it was the only time she went to church because she's got five kids to raise, so... And I have to ask, did she... she did, were you all baptised and, ca- and communioned yeah. and everything? Oh, yeah. She raised that you was, Catholics. That was the law of the land back then. Yeah, of course. We were all born in the 70s, pretty much. Two of us were born in the early 80s. But that was... You wouldn't have gone any other way. You know, when we were... You know, grew up in a housing estate. So, you know, we're Catholics. That's it. <laughs> Which is fine, you know. And so that division, that it's like, I suppose, childhood trauma of that awareness yeah, you, could, you could tap yeah. into mm-hmm. a very extreme version of that a very extreme version of that and wow. also I grew up with a here we go with the personal stuff um, grew up with a quite heavy speech impediment and it wasn't nice back in the 80s I was bullied but not by my friends like great friends absolutely fantastic friends still the same friends today actually <laughs> my, even though I lived away for 25 years I still have Amazing. still got my crew at home um, you describe your time uh, in in being a tour guide in mm-hmm. Dachau as a beautiful experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I said it to some of my guests when I was leaving when I was doing my last tour. I said, this is, this is the top of the hill for me. Did you? You know, I felt like, wow. But I wanted to leave it happy as well. And, you know, shed a tear the last day, say goodbye to all the staff that you'd know in there. I mean, 12 like, years is a beginning. 12 years is a lot. Like, yeah. uh, look, this is probably a dark bit of humour, but one of the survivors that I know quite well and we would have seen a lot of each other, we were queuing for coffee one day and he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, Gordon, You've been in the camp longer than I was. <laughs> but that's the kind of humour that these guys yeah, that's funny. internally would have of shared. Course, yeah, yeah. And 12 years as a guide in the site is an intense kind of thing, you know. But after 12 years, it was time to come, come home to Ireland, actually. I and and it, the, it, the site was a camp for just under 13 years, 12 years. Yeah, about 12 years. was. Yeah, almost. Your yeah. life is full of circles, isn't it? It is. <laughs> really something in me that follows patterns or likes patterns and and so you studied 
seriously studied art for six years in Munich. Yeah, I studied for nearly two years down in Limerick and then I did six years. Yeah, and so you brought it back. Brought it all back and brought all the Dachau experience back too. And it's it's all, you know, most artists would say anyway, you know, we, we, we collect things and then we just put them into our work, not directly, but just emotionally, uh, instinctively. So my work, for example, that I'm showing this Saturday at The Source Art Centre in Turles, it's not directly about Dachau or directly about anything (laughs) it's my art it's my process and for this exhibition I've been actually for the first time really I've been working full-time for about over a year now as an artist thanks to the uh basic income grant great yeah I was lucky enough to be happy for you for that well done two thousand people got it so happy for you and I hope that what I'm doing is definitely not wasting the money no I'm putting it in to an exhibition I built my own studio at home in a big barn and I have a strong feeling that the success of this program... That's such an artist thing to say. I oh, hope yeah. I'm not wasting the money. They're not. It's wonderful. No, it's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But I think what this is going to prove, and I think Ireland is is massively ahead of other countries when it comes to this. We are a country of creativity. That's what we do. And it's fantastic to see that the government have realised that, especially during the pandemic, we learned so much. So I'm hoping that what I'm doing and what other people who are receiving this grant are doing is proven that everyone who's an artist can get this Tell me how your experience in Dachau has, would influence your work. I have to ask that. because It would influence my work. I think central to my work, you know, I'm an artist, so lots of people would write about my work or someone else might comment on it. So I like to be blind in one eye about my own work to a certain extent. You don't want to be too conscious of it. You're not going to learn it and there's going to be no process, no journey, no pathway. But I think one thing that does really influence me and what I loved about the site in Dachau is the change of function of a facility. How something that was designed for debt is now used to promote life. You know, that idea has always been very, very strong for me. You know, so don't knock down the buildings. Just let's just, you know, so I think that is a big part of it. You know, and religion comes into my work quite a lot. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. In what way? As an observer, I'm not particularly a religious person. Actually, I'm not a religious person at all. But I do think that... um, we're not it's not that we're missing something but we all have this longing it doesn't matter where in the world you're from or what background you come from we all wonder what's out there like what are we doing what's what's this all about where am I going to go when it's over like oh my god you know so I think that mortality is a huge part of my work it's very much embedded in it every day in Dachau there must have been a sense of mortality yeah absolutely in like the you're walls. literally walking past mass graves yeah. all the time but as a guide you kind of have to get used to it but the guests, Do you ever get used to it? You do and you don't. You're aware. You're aware, but you have to be professional and have some kind of um, distance from it too. Otherwise, it's like you have to remember that the guests that are on your tour are probably only going to be there once in their life. So you have to hold it together, you know, for them. And do people get very upset on the they tour? They do, yeah. yeah. But I uh, like to pride myself that at the end of my tour, people added something to their lives and they went out with a sense of energy. Okay, yeah. You know, and they thought, yeah, you know, I'm going to bring what I learned here today. So tell me what people can expect from your solo exhibition this weekend. My solo exhibition this weekend is my first solo show and it's actually my first time exhibiting in Ireland. So I'm showing a whole a whole collection of new works. There's a very, very large installation which I haven't exposed to the world yet. Everyone oh, has to exciting. see that Saturday, so turn up Saturday at the source in Turles. It's a large church <laughs> that's been kind of manipulated. And then I'm doing uh, video works, uh, a number of sculpture reliefs 
and uh, photographic uh, installation work as well. So it's a whole collection of new works and it's a very large space and it's it's all just for me. And it's, it's happening this Saturday. This Saturday and it goes on to the end of January. Wonderful. And it's the Source Art Centre. And it's Trump's. a free exhibition. It's a free exhibition. Um, and, it's and I'll be there Saturday having an old chat about it. Brilliant. So, so o'clock in the website's gordonhogan.com and me. at Gordon Hogan Art. That's and it. it's in Turles and Tipperary and... Uh, yeah. Please go along and see it and let us know uh, what you think. It's <laughs> uh, uh, wonderful to meet you. Thank you so Absolutely much. Absolutely my you, Gordon. pleasure and honour. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's the 1st of December and we're going to take a look at the annual arrival to our airwaves of the classic Christmas song. It's sort of accepted that if you write a successful Christmas song, you and your family are set up for life. Remember in the film about a boy, Hugh Grant's slacker character was living on inherited wealth from just such a Christmas song. And year in, year out, we hear that Naughty Holder and from Slade or Chris Rhea never have to work again because of their yearly royalty checks. Is it true, though? I'm joined this morning by entertainment journalist Dave Hanratty. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Hello, sir. How are you? You've been looking at some of the classics. They're going to give us an idea of what they are and if we can. Um, but before we dive in, we have to uh, acknowledge the death of the great Shane McGowan. Yeah, you used the words cultural force there this morning in your intro, and that's a perfect way of putting it. And the tributes have been pouring in. I, I think of Michael D. Higgins and saying, quote, the genius of Shane's contribution includes the fact that his song has captured within them, as he would put it, the measure of our dreams. So many worlds particularly those of love, the emigrant experience and the face and the challenge that that experience will authenticity and courage. That's the kind of tribute that doesn't happen for just everybody. And I think as well, like, you know, it is kind of one of those situations where without saying hyperbolic, a nation is in mourning. We've lost yeah. a huge, a pivotal cultural figure. It is a desperately sad situation. You think of his loved ones, you think of his wife, Victoria, his former bandmates in the Pogues, his immediate family. But, you know, as a, as a wider Irish community, we have lost somebody. And in a year as well, where we also lost Christy Dignam and Sinead O'Connor, it's going to take a long time to kind of recover from this but at least there is a legacy to hold proudly aloft it, yeah it's Irish rocks uh, it's a horrible year for Irish rock really isn't it um, but Shane is, had become a kind of uh, a living legend you know, in our Irish folklore and he was he started transcended into an artist and a poet in a way. but he was a punk wasn't he at his core he was a bit of both yeah I mean like I think he, he had a middle class upbringing which I think kind of shocks some he? people yeah like he, he went to a, a fee paying school which in fairness he was drummed out of he was expelled he clashed with authorities <laughs> which shouldn't yeah he had that punk cred from a very very early age uh, it wasn't until he went to a clash gig in the 70s in the UK in which I think he was injured during the show and that was you know his response was I want a bit of this and really? sh- sure enough the Pogues would come along and tear up the UK punk scene but he had that poetry in him it's in the lyrics it's in the delivery it's in the incredible way that he got in front of a microphone and did what he did I actually was walking down this morning and the, the phrase measure of our dreams was in my head and it's just a beautiful use of language what does it mean? I think he was able to conjure up a different kind of world but also it's the bittersweet thing isn't it? It's the melancholic thing it's the glass half full and half empty I think it was a case of here was someone that we romanticised and valorised for a lifestyle that ultimately was of course quite harmful but he was out there kind of you know being strutting upon the stage being that player that none of us could be and it is it's a beautiful turn of phrase it's a very lyrical turn of phrase and it's one that's kind of in line with what he would do but I like the fact that Shane McGowan could do that he could conjure up these worlds and these words that none of us could but he would also just bring it back down to earth he was a very grounded figure as well. It's it's a sad irony, isn't it, that when somebody passes, we actually then do look at their body of work and stop looking at them. And we, in some ways, we missed an opportunity to thank them. Much like Sinead, I think we, we all felt a sort of national guilt for not telling her how much we loved her when she was here. Um, what's his legacy, do you think? 
I think his legacy is that of a poet and of a punk and of a dreamer and of someone who genuinely hit the international stage in a way that few others did. I mean, you have to look at the celebrity, the legion of celebrity admirers. Bruce Springsteen has constantly talked about how much he loves Shane McGowan, how his music will be remembered 100 years from now, and it definitely will. There's a great Kiefer Sutherland story about the two of them getting into a fight but making up. And you know, What's that story? Essentially, they're out one night, they, they clashed, I think, over political beliefs. And in the end, I think Shane had to crash in his hotel room and they managed to make up a Along the way, but Keeper Sutherland said that when he came back, the bed was made beautifully, like no one had ever made a bed before. And Shane had left him a, a handwritten note, and he said it was the most eloquent note I've ever seen in my entire life. And he has that note framed, which of course now will be a memento for the rest of time. His legacy is a genuine legacy, and like in a time when artists, you know, aren't maybe as iconic as they once were, we have this strange relationship. And it is it is interesting that you mentioned that kind of thing of when someone passes away, their back catalogue or their films or whatever shoot up the charts essentially, because we have that weird kind of innate curiosity it's difficult to to thank Shane McGowan in person when he's here you do remember him that way he will be talked about forever that's the legacy that's amazing and those words are beautiful thank you so much now we didn't know we'd, we would be talking about this today obviously um, and we had wanted to talk about uh, Christmas music so we're going to talk about Christmas music and obviously we're going to end with Fairy Tale of New York because it is my favourite, I'm sure it's your favourite, it's going to be number one all around the world. But the phenomena of, you know, that, I just played that Mariah, ding, 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 and you're, you kind of, I get sort of, if I hear that too early, I'm not happy, right? And even there's the, there's the meme on TikTok now of people lip syncing, oh, you guys, and it's Mariah, and she breaks into the song. Let's, let's talk, okay, so 1942, Bing Crosby records White Christmas, which is still one of the most iconic songs on earth, right? And, and then we have a list of songs and it becomes an after dinner sport of your favourite songs. But we don't officially know. I know Mariah has talked publicly about like she literally, her purse smiled when <laughs> they start to play All I Want for Christmas because the, the royalties people earn. What kind of royalties do people earn? Well, I should say that it's funny that you mentioned too early because too it's, early. Getting, it's yeah. getting earlier and earlier. And as a matter of fact, Christmas songs went to the charts this year, the earliest they ever have in mid-November. The first of November is Mariah Carey Day, the Queen of Christmas, as she calls herself. So, and of course, her All I Want for Christmas is You is one of the biggest earners. It's uh, There was research carried out. It's actually difficult to ascertain exactly how much money because uh, the Performing Rights Society, the PRS, essentially says, well, this isn't a matter of public record. We want to keep our members' earnings private when it comes to this thing. But there was independent research carried out by Channel 5, of all people, a few years ago. Um, top of the charts, top of the league table of Christmas money is Merry Xmas, everybody, because that is the official title by Slade, which is a judge to earn over 1.15 million euro per year. Let's take a clip. That's my childhood right there, isn't it? That's like everyone's isn't childhood, yeah. So, and I think once it goes nostalgic, then it's hooked in, is it? I, this is the thing. I mean, we, we might ask the question of why haven't we had a similar song in recent years to kind of match this. And why haven't we? I think it's tied into a time. I think it's seasonal. I think it's generational. I think that we grew up where a television or a radio was... was all we had. It's all we had. And now we pass that down to our kids and other people are just like, well, I can't compete with that possibly. Uh, it's, it's a dying art. And I think, you know, there is money to be made here, but 
it's kind of it's kind of boxed off. Like it's kind of like these classic songs just generate and regenerate, and they're played all year round in some you know retail places where it's Christmas all year round. Nightmare, by the way. Yeah. Or it's first November. It's Christmas time. Let's go with the classics. It's very very hard to get into this crowded market. Very interesting. And of course, you hear people wanting the dream. So one that really st- stood out to me on the list in in the in top turn of earnings is. Um, is Eat 17 Stay Another Day which isn't even a Christmas song but it has snow in the videos and bells let's take a clip It's the bells that make it Christmassy, isn't it? The song, Tony Mortimer actually wrote it about his brother Ollie, who died by suicide. Yeah, it's very poignant. It's not actually a Christmas song at all. But wow, I did not know that. <laughs> it was released in mid-November in 94, uh, and it was the UK number one that year. And we all remember that video, of course, as well. And as you say, yeah, bells in the video, snow in the video. That's the whole thing. That it makes a, Apparently, it makes a, about €112,000 per year. But it's it's a weird one. Like, boy bands will always, always have the poignant, heartbreaking ballad. This yeah. is theirs. And for some reason, uh, it's just, it's Christmas guys we have to play it but as you say it's actually about a very tragic real life event and masterfully captured of all people by 17 it's actually it, once you hear it there again it's one of those it's one of those guilty pleasures it's actually kind of a good song as well isn't it there are no guilty pleasures Brendan oh I love that I love that there's no guilty pleasures now the next one that I'm going to play is for me again it, it feels like it's much older it's from the 80s and it's Stop the Cavalry Jonah Louie have a listen <laughs> And maybe that line is something to do with being Irish abroad, is it? Wish I was home for Christmas. It's something, and it's from the eighties. Yeah. Something of an accident as well, yeah. Uh, Ruffy makes about 140 grand a year. John Louis has said that it's provided about half of his total income stream. Uh, it sold about three or four million copies, so I never had to get a proper job, he said. But it wasn't, again... Hugh, it Grant's, wasn't, ca- Hugh Grant's based on it. It's from about the First World War, actually. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't intended as Christmas on. The Christmas line was kind of thrown in as an afterthought. And now, of course, we hear it every year at this time. Okay, Joe. So uh, this is not probably not going to surprise you, Dave, but this is my second favourite Christmas song. Um, and I remember exactly where I was the moment I heard it and wished I was in the van. It's Wham. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. Day, you this is those vocals, George. <laughs> so. For me, I thought this would be right at the top of the list, but it's not. It's number five. Yeah, mid-table. Yeah, about yeah. 300, 350 grand a year it's a judge to make as well. And like, again, George Michael, who unfortunately left us at Christmas several years back, an artist who I don't think was appreciated enough in his time. A genius, an eloquent, thoughtful man, an incredible person. And also, when it comes to Christmas songs, this is my number one. This Is Is it your number one? Yeah, the best Christmas song of Why all time. Why is that? Interesting. You're I'm a bit not, younger than me, so I was... Like, I, I do associate it with a nostalgia for sure, but I think it's just brilliant. I, I think everything about it works. I think it actually transcends the Christmas season. I think it is the one Christmas song, in my opinion, you can play. Well, maybe Fairytale New York as well. But like, you can play this any time of the year. It's beautifully put together. It's it's a beautiful sentiment and it just works. It just has that kind of infectious hook that gets you straight away and the vocals are absolutely magnificent. And the video's pretty good. Pepsi and Shirley. That's what they were called, by the way. Iconic, as they say. Iconic. Yeah. Now, this is a song my dad used to play on Christmas morning um, and it would get us all going. I remember it on top of the pops and I remember it came around and I think this is kind of the original song that kept coming back and it slayed Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's take a clip.
sister making her kids scream that it's Christmas like and they'd be like and that is am I right or am I just that is in my crazy brain that this was the first time a Christmas song started to come back as number one and it, people it became a Christmas song it kind of birthed that whole Christmas number one race because uh, it went to number one twice in two different decades Did 19, it? 1973 and 1989 yeah so like they they knew what they were on to here <laughs> and in fairness this is the kind of song where I wonder if there's anyone on this planet who hasn't heard it such is the level of its reach and the level of its money like I say this is top of the table this is the highest earning Christmas song that we are aware of and um, Naughty Holder has said before it is definitely a pension plan. It was never designed to be that way but it took on a life of its own. It's been used for ads, it's been used in movies, it's been used in all sorts of things. It's relentless. There's also an incredible uh, deranged YouTube remix of this song where someone has taken the lyric, are you hanging up your stocking on your wall? And just plays that over and over and over again in the style of Naughty Holder and the first time I heard that I could not stop laughing. Is it funny? Oh it's genius, yeah. Incredible. We've had lots of texts in here. Have you ever worked in retail? Christmas songs are a whole other thing. Head melted, that texture says. Fair enough. Listen yep. to Christmas songs all Day would, get, right. would get difficult, right? Another text, hi Brian. I can't understand why Coldplay never re released Christmas Lights, best Christmas song ever, in my opinion, says Sean. Would you agree? It's a good shout, yeah. I mean, like, again, this is the question of the market and how a lot of big bands have shied away from it in recent years. And if you look at the charts, it's not what you might think, especially in Ireland. I mean, oftentimes the Christmas number one is not a Christmas song at all. And in the UK, a novelty act has actually been dominating for the last five years, an act called Lad Baby, who is sitting at the race this year. So it's interesting. Yeah, the Coldplay thing, you feel like they could do it no problem but and like Christmas Lights is a good song but for some reason it's just kind of a weird B-side for them A text here Brendan don't hate me for saying this but the song from About a Boy the Hugh Grant film Santa's Super Slay it was called is really good it's a great Christmas song so wholesome they don't want to leave their name this text says because his kids all his or her sorry they the kids oh the kids already think they're lame and that won't help we're going to have a little blast of that song Mum loves daddy he loves her and I don't I love them both and they both love me And that's how things should be Look who's coming round the bend It's Santa oh, no. and his reindeer oh, friends that's enough of that now. With a ho, oh, gosh. ho, ho, Oh, hey, hey, I kind of remember that now. Make me want to watch that movie again, in fairness. What, do you have a favourite Christmas movie? Oh, God. Uh, I, I don't want to be the guy who says Die Hard because that's the conversation that happens every single year, but I Goodness do watch me. Die Hard every Goodness year because me. I'm a living cliche. What can I say? Goodness me. Now, um, of course, I want to really talk about everybody's favourite and it's going to be number one all across, across the world Fairy Tale of New York tell me a bit about the background of that so this is interesting because it's, it's hotly contested it, it's disputed to this day that this may be an apocryphal story but we tend to print the legend because it's a good story supposedly Elvis Costello dared Shane McGowan to make a Christmas song saying, saying you couldn't you couldn't do it he was like you can do this you can do that but you couldn't do a Christmas song no I've uh, never heard this fact again people say that it's not true people say it's a it's a glorious legend of the music industry but I think it's such a good story that we we want it to be true Yeah. and so a couple of years later basically Shane was like yeah you're on I'll try that and two years later out comes Fairytale New York and the rest is genuinely history a song that has like become such a strange part of our culture especially in recent years there's been a lot of controversy about it but I think that's going to be very much pushed to the side this year I the, don't like forget the Christmas number one race this will be Christmas number one it should be Christmas number one to celebrate Shane and Kirsty McCall of course as well um, a song that people have really taken to their chests you know and I kind of like say that it's about flawed characters and it's interesting like I say that kind of modern conversation we've had about it but again you talk about staples you talk about being in the in the family home at Christmas and this just being on all the time 
Yeah, it gives us a kind of a, especially, I, you know, I spent many Christmases abroad in London mostly. And that song gives us kind of an Irish ownership globally of Christmas in a way, isn't it? Of the, the disenfranchised, of living abroad, of ending up, you know, making a few mad mistakes or, you know, drinking too much, whatever it was. That song sort of embodied a youth about immigrants, I think. It is genuinely part of the culture, yeah. And I think I think that part of it is kind of overlooked. I think some people just reduce it to a squabbling couple. But as you say, there are layers to this. And like I say, you know, there are controversial layers to this. And I do think that people who've had problems with lyrics over the year have a valid argument to make. But of course, it's it's a bigger song than that. It is a, it's almost a stage play. Like, it is almost like this incredible narrative that's weaved It's in. a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. And like, it is interesting to see that kind of international travel it's had. And as you say, like, it speaks to the Irish experience abroad. It speaks to deeply flawed people who love each other but can't quite make it work and lots of other things and people also just love the song they just love the arrangement they love hearing those first few notes and they love his voice yes uh, I've loads of texts you're getting a great response Dave uh, Little Things by ABBA totally brilliant Christmas song but hugely overlooked says Frank do you know that song? yeah ABBA are an interesting one because I think that we automatically just associate them with Christmas at times just due to the kind of the, the nature of the party yeah and also like the kind of the composition of some of their songs but yeah again not necessarily like, like they're, they're, they're Eurovision act like, like that, that's who ABBA are they transcended that of course but they are a Eurovision act this is a song I don't know Mary Gautier Christmas in Paradise Barry and Castleknock that's a new one for me new one. Kate Bush's song Snowflake recorded with her son beautiful song definitely worth a listen says Eilish and Glass Nevin Kate Bush songs I don't know it Winter Song uh, uh, by Liz Nefarna is the best and most underrated Christmas song Linda's Varn sorry I can't even read now sorry uh, and John Lewis at Christmas in London once I was in the shop in John Lewis and said to the woman at the desk what a relief it was to escape the music and she said it's a staff run cooperative and they all decided against it <laughs> <laughs> that's ironic John Lewis decided against Christmas songs another one Gilbert O'Sullivan I'm, I'm not dreaming of a white Christmas said Mick and Fingless I think Merry Christmas by Ed Sheeran and Elton John is one of the only newer Christmas songs as a contender for a Christmas classic such a heartwarming catching song oh what do you think of that song that was actually one of the only Irish one number ones in the last five years that is the Christmas song all the other ones were like Dermot Kennedy or various different uh, pop stars it's fine I thought it was a cash grab and actually John Lewis yeah I have that whole thing <laughs> this trend of the maudlin cover you know like the slowed down acoustic sad version of a popular song the John Lewis uh, ad has a lot to answer for you think of the Lily Allen one of the keen somewhere only we know the original is beautiful the cover is just ugh no. yeah I, I'm done with them as well now interesting you, you touched on why you know those iconic Christmas number ones may not happen but maybe because Maybe they'll come back again, but you're saying you have a theory, right? And it's to do X Factor, and I love this. Go on. Yeah, I think the X Factor has killed the Christmas song. Oh, <laughs> what an accusation! Uh, like X Factor doesn't have the clout it once had before a time. It was kind of preordained that whoever would win the X Factor would get the Christmas number one in the UK. I remember it so well. Forgot all about that. Yeah, and it was also like it was either you get a maudlin cover, like I said before, whether it's Alexander Burke doing Hallelujah, Matt Cardle's rework of a Biffy Clyro song, or you just get like some really bland original. But it was just that was it. It was it was so up they'll win the X Factor they'll be they'll be Christmas number one that's part of the marketing campaign and I think that really warded a lot of people off even just kind of getting into the ring so to speak on this one like there's a lot of factors in play here the dominance of the older songs that we're talking about that are just completely baked in we our brain won't accept new information when it comes to Christmas songs and also the bottom has fallen out of the music industry in terms of money and streaming but I do think that reality shows especially the X Factor uh, it just it wards off artists from really trying you, you still get like things happening I mean Villagers and Lisa Hannigan put out a cover of Little Drummer 
Boy just this week. But I think X Factor, yeah, for, for its many crimes, one of them is the, uh, I guess, the erasing of the great Christmas song. The assassination of Christmas number one. So maybe it'll make a, a comeback now. But uh, that was a wonderful chat, uh, Dave and Ratty. Thank you so much for coming in. And I think where we started and where we should finish this conversation, of course, is with Fairy Tale of New York.